0: There, welcome to the podcast. Uh, listen to coaches chat us today, we've got Stu. Um, really interesting to see his, his story and his side of coaching. Um, so, welcome, Stu. Thank you for being on the show. Um, and starting off, just just let me know your your sporting
1: journey. Right. Yeah. So, like most people from from year dot, uh, I know PE might look a bit different to to some of your listeners of your generation, but uh, back in the sixties, I had a Polish. Uh, teacher in primary school, and she was a war veteran with one eye, and she taught us everything about sport and teamwork and everything else, and she did it all in a in a in a, uh, a rain mac and a skirt. She had no whistle and tracksuit, but she was really really adaptable. And one of the big things that impressed me about her more than anything else, she always gave us a full fixture f- list of all sports, um, taught us to swim and everything in our primary school. And I think she came as like a, a history teacher or a maths teacher or something like that. Well, Mrs. Pahenchkoff was her name and I'll never forget her. Um, so it was her being resourceful. And I'll give you an example, Josh. So I remember seeing Javelin on the timetable and when we're eleven and stuff like that, and I goes, oh, great, we're going to do that. And um, like always, I was always first down the sports field, and I was, and, and she come walking across the field, and she had a big sack in her hand, and she threw all these tennis balls out. And I went, where's the javelins, miss? And she went, you need to learn to throw first. So right from there, I knew there was a process to, that led you somewhere else. So um, I thank her for it, and I and I think. Of all the, all the sticky patches, again, as a player, as an athlete and as a coach, I was thinking about how adaptable Mrs. behenchkoff was um, and taught us loads of good things about sport and and and, and what sport can do for, for, for your life and your journey. And then, fortunately, I excelled in some sports. I was always very fast. So when I got into second year, because I was quick, um, I was going to be a professional footballer <laughs> so I thought um, but I had, that was my sport I loved it and I fell into judo that was quite good and I, don't, I was you know, at the youth club and I just saw the, the lads wrestling in white suits as an 11 to 12 year old and I thought I'll have some of that and I got a black belt in judo uh, while I was still a teenager so I stuck in at that and I was a good soccer player um, and clubs were looking at me my dad was a professional soccer player my dad played for Man City Oldham and Blackpool and um, but I, I wasn't any good, Josh. I was just fast. Mm-hmm. So when it came to to doing the real stuff, um, I knew I had a big job on.
0: Yeah, uh, you are tracking back and running down the wing that You were good at with your speed.
1: Oh yeah, just run around everybody. Everything. I was a fast bowler at cricket. I could catch a ball before it running into touch. I win all my races, both long and short. I was just one of them lads. And I, I want a first I want an early birthday. Um, I was a, a third quartile birthday. But I think, you know, I just saw some good, good genes off my dad, I suppose. Mm. Uh, um, but anyway, I, 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 I hated rugby and obviously I made my life out of rugby as a professional rugby player. And um, I used to see it, I knew it was there. And my dad used to go and say what a good sport it was and you should, I should try it. But I just didn't like the rugby lads. I thought they were like, you know, what are they about, these lads? And I just love my football and what I was doing. But even my, my PE teacher was saying to me, you need to try rugby with your judo and your speed and your soccer and your goal kicking. This sport's for you. And I'm like, I'm not going near that. I'm doing something else with my life. Mm. Well, in them days, we used to have into house games. I don't know where they have houses. And, you know, so inside your school, inside your year, and right the way through, you had houses and um, so we had inter-house competitions and they were good fixtures as well. So one house would play another athletics. So, you know, so there's four houses in my school and we'd always have these competitions taking place. And um, a girl who I really liked when I got to about, f- in my fifth year and I was about to leave, I really liked her a lot. And she'd come up to me, she'd say, listen, the rugby team's short, you've got to play. And I'd always said no to everybody else. And I just went, "I okay. Because so, it was uh... a... <laughs> Exactly. So I stumbled into rugby really late, mm. which aligns and correlates with what we research I suppose, Jos, because yeah. it is a late specialisation sport. And, and I don't know whether your, your listeners l- understand things like that, but when I look back at my life, it correlates with a lot of things really. So, and I played. I played in the in the in the house team, and and, and uh, the, the my PE teacher, um, he came up to me after the game he was always on about rugby and he's a rugby player himself and he said what do you think and I went it was absolutely brilliant mm. loved, loved everything about it because well do you want to you want to come to the club then and he chucked me in the back of his car on Thursday because we lived in a town miles away from where the rugby club and I went and trained with his rugby team and I was around all these blokes and I just loved it you know being 15 16 and uh, there was no Colts teams or junior teams. Yeah, there was a Colts team, actually, but I didn't train with them to start with. And they said, oh, do you want to play in the fourth or fifth team on Saturday? And I thought, Christ, I'd rather do this than rugby. And all these blokes are a great laugh. Mm. And soccer, I should say. So... um and then I never played soccer again till I retired and went back to my old football team when I was 40 odd to play in a Sunday league with them all, which was brilliant as well. Mm. But I made, you know, like, so it was quite a fast journey for me, Josh. I, I was, I, you know, by the time I was 16, I was doing really well playing with blokes. By the time I was 18, I was offered my first professional contract and I hadn't even learned to play properly. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, smart things with me, the, um, you know, because I was fast and, and young and, and they put me on the wing. Um, then they knew I could kick goals and they went, oh, great, let's move into fullback. Then they saw how smart I was with my vision that I got from football and everything that was going on. And I had no fear from the judo. They pushed me into like some of the key positions. And, and it just accelerated that quick. Um, and within weeks, I was playing in front. I was lining up against... You know Tony Myler, who was the Great Britain standoff at Witness Away in front of fifteen thousand people, all in a matter of weeks.
0: Mm. Massive journey, massive step there, really.
1: Short like period of time, I mate, I was nowhere near ready. Mm.
0: And it sounds like the diversification of it—you know, using all these oh, different yeah. skills in the past—definitely yeah. helped you. You know, when you're talking about your, your speed from sprinting and stuff, your football with your vision, it's like it's definitely helped that that side of
1: your game. Yeah, rugby's an easier game to play for me because everything's in front of me. Football and basketball, it's everywhere. They're coming at from all. So you've got to have really, really, you know, this extra uh, perceptual vision and feelings for things that are going on. Put me in a rugby pitch and this space there, I know how to exploit that space by holding here or or outmanoeuvre somebody. So, And again, just kicking was easy to me because that's all I'd ever done is kick a ball. And when it comes to wrestling, big blokes, I had no problem because I am on a spot. Do you know what I mean? So I had the toughness as well, really. So it, it, it took off. My career took off as a rugby rugby player. By the time I was 20, Josh, I got offered a, a contract for Western Suburbs in Australia. Um, And I was leaving Great Britain to go to Australia in 1979, 80, to play in the greatest competition in the world. And Josh, I wasn't ready. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't, I know I wasn't, but I'm not going to say no. So I left my family and my girlfriend and, I stayed for 10 years in Australia playing in the best competition in the world.
0: When you say um, you weren't ready, sorry, when you say you weren't ready, is that more mentally the fact that you just weren't equipped with the game?
1: Uh, at the yeah, that's it. But, I mean, it's so, every sport's nuanced. There's so many things to it, Josh, isn't there? Do you yeah. know what I mean? And and, and I want attuned to all those nuances. I was still, you know, parts of my rugby matches were still playing football. Do you know when I was tackling, I was still using judo and not the top of my shoulder.
0: Yeah. So you right, know I mean? got the balance
1: of it all in. in and oh yeah, it's, it's, yeah, sports really nuanced. So, but I knew that from Mrs. Moon. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Teaching us all different things. So, you know, I, you know, things happened to me before I was ready, but and I had some tough times. I got knocked about a bit, I had the piss took out of me off the lads, uh, for being, you know, just young and naive, um, which is all part of your journey. And, and there's lots of silly, clumsy things that happened to me that set me back, and I had some difficulties. And, you know, like moving away from home when I was so young and, and and in those days you had nobody around you, apart from a coach just saying, play better, lift more, run faster. And you're driving yourself on as well. I had mental health problems. Mm-hmm. I was living on my own in a flat with nobody to talk to. I had so many tough experiences when I was young. I know I can handle anything now, no matter what comes through the door on me, physically, emotionally, or anything else. I know I'm up for it. And I think that all those things has helped me work with people as a coach.
0: Yeah. And right. un- that understanding how, how they feel as well. You know, you were, you were a kid in uh, over in Australia and you can sort of smash anything now. Is that sort of the similarity of seeing a player and struggling, you know, knowing as a coach now, you know, you'll be all right after
1: this? Yeah, there's so many things that happened in my life then. Uh, you know, and again, where, you know, because uh, I stayed so long, uh, other, other people came to live with me. So I started to to make friends. So I think this had come over a couple of seasons and go back. And that was a really important part for me, that, because I knew the lay of the land and I really enjoyed being around people. And and what I, I'll make the statement now, Josh, in, in coaching, all right, your network is your major currency. It really is about building up your network and who you know, no matter how well qualified or experienced you are. Okay, and know why and this will that will make sense of that connection to Australia and people visiting me in later years because throw it fifteen years forward from 1982, all right. Uh, one of the kids that come to stay with me became a legend in the game, all right, and he got a coaching job, all right, and he knew I was in the country coaching, all right, and he was really in charge of a top professional club, and he rang me and gave me the assistant coach's job. To get me, Paul?
0: Yeah, it's, it's knowing it's knowing the people really then you then you Yeah, yeah. Really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he, he's still today probably one of the best coaches he ever worked for. But he gave me a leg up because um he needed some help. And he was a couple of years younger than me when he came over. And we just and from there that, that particular thing kept appearing in my network as other really good opportunities happened to me, Josh. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I came back to the UK uh, when I was injured. I couldn't get a contract on my visa. So I sort of stuck there and I I started to try and develop myself there and I couldn't see where I was going. You know what I mean? So I couldn't find where, you know, this environment that was in this life I was living where I could spend the rest of my life. Um, I ended up working on the railways on tankers, filling up as tankers came in with petrol and oil. I'd fill these big tankers up on the railway and off the go. And it was a good job, well paid. Uh, but I wanted to try and stay involved in sport. And a coach came over looking for Australian talent and asked me if I'd come and play for him. So I came back to the UK and uh, when I was like 29, something like that. And I got a contract with a top club, a really, really good top club. Um, and I wasn't there long when I got injured, but I managed to find my way back uh, to one of the lower championship clubs and play again. All right. But in that time, Josh, so when I left school in in the mid seventies, there was the only I knew wanted to work in sport even then. All right. But was, the only thing that was about then, Josh, was the PE degree.
0: Mm, not really that inside school. of it.
1: Well, no, none of that existed. There was just a PE degree in sport and I didn't have a B in science, so I was never going to do it. I was never going to get into a, into a university then. When I came back in, a, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, all well, their sports development, their sports science, there's a few other things kicking around. Could I get them? So I started to go to night school to redo my maths and my English and everything else. Trained as a PT, started to, to make me living from being a PT and, and getting some part-time coaching through me, through me me contacts at professional clubs. So I was putting food on the table for, for my kids. But even in them days, coach education didn't look like it what it does today, Josh. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It appeared nothing. You really had to be resourceful. All right, back to Mrs. Behenshkov.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just about to mention. Then that, was that ever such a, a great thing in the back of your mind? Always knowing that when you were younger, your teacher was so adaptable that that kind of influenced you. Um, you know, you talk about there how you had to do loads of different stuff to you know get money and get money into the house. And did that really help you?
1: Of course it did. Yeah. So I just knew I had to be able to do different things, which I did. You know, so you know, like my, my typical week. Josh would be. Um, I'd have some PT work, which was part-time. Um, and then of an evening, I was coaching, part, assistant coaching part-time with Andy, who I told you about. Um, could, you know, it, it was like, a, the sport was part-time then. It, it didn't go on full-time until the mid, in the UK till the mid-90s. So there was no full-time jobs either, Josh. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So um, I think in the, in the time in between that, I fitted exhausts and changed tyres at a garage um and then i coached of an evening i went to night school as well to study it and and develop myself in maths and english and sit on coaching courses so that's where i was going so talk about your network again josh it's a, it's a good story this mate but i know it's you might want to talk about some other stuff, but you might want to make some links. So you need to stop me now because we're not even got going yet on my journey, but there's so many things that, that affected my ep- epistemological growth, my ontology and axology when we get to it during that time. Do you understand?
0: Yeah, no, it's perfect. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah,
1: so, you know, you, you know you, While they might be just reading for young students, I lived uh, with ontology and epistemology influencing axiology which is how I, how I articulate my philosophical statements mm. so that's that sort of gives you an idea now all these things influence me did i know that at the time josh did i heck. yeah
0: you
1: know What i mean i just i know that now because i look back and i can see where it all aligned but i was just really a person that would would uh, would be a team player and, and contribute to people's lives mm. so then you know when like, uh, uh, when we go to coaching it, did, it, it was a, a bad experience, my first time in coaching in the professional game. And I remember getting sacked um, when the head coach went and I we had a difficult time with that. So what I decided to do then, Josh, I thought, right, let's learn coaching really well. Let's do it well. So I thought about Mrs P. Emsikoff as well. So I went to the local town and I, don't get me wrong, I could have, you know, my time as a, a professional, and the net, I could have got an academy job or a coach job, it was in them days. So I went to do uh, my local team, and I just said to the fella, listen, have you got any teams that need coaching? And he goes, well, make room for you, mate. And because he knew who I was. And he said, there's some under 12s, there's a bucket and there's a ball. All right, off you go. So like, I went to, I didn't know kids, I didn't know what the coaching was. So I learned it at grassroots level, where I could mess up and make a mess of stuff. Um, I had these wonderful parents, and that's where I started. You know, I look back now and I think, Christ, these parents I, I, co- I collaborated with and they helped me run it when i was running these under 12s i knew i couldn't do it on my own so i knew I had to bring strength and conditioning coaches in i needed to get psychological support All right, i needed other things to help me communicate with that all them different personalities and diff- dispositions so i brought lot like, i thought we'd well, be good at that and she'd be good at that so before you know it these under 12s had about six people helping them <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Josh, it went really well. Mm. And did you feel like you went for
0: sort of the grassroots side of it? You know, you talk about messing up. I remember in our uh, in our first year when we had our practicals. You know, your constant saying was, "It's okay to fail. It's okay to mess up." Did you feel that? it was almost a better task for you to go for a grassroots level to mess up and and really get to grips with it and sort of meet new people rather than in an academy level. The pressure's there, you know, to get it right every time.
1: Yeah. 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 I didn't want to get sacked again. I thought Mm -hmm. if I'm going to go back into that network again, I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be a pioneer. I'm going to be, um, I, don't, I don't like the word maverick. I think it's, it's too many people claim it. I was a renegade. I was going to come in, pioneer, smash things up, change it and make a great name for myself. Mm. And I learnt it all, messing around with a lot of kids and turning them into really, really good people and good athletes. And some of them went on to play for Great Britain. All right. That was from under-12s team. So I knew it went well. People thought, God, it's like the, the, you know, the, the Hitler Youth what he's running. But that's the way I wanted to do it. And it went really well. The kids had great experiences, and even today, uh, when I some of those twelve them kids that are twelve years, I'm a good parents to the children. So I knew I did a good job of taking them through to the sixteen. Mm. Because it went well, Josh, the, the chairman said to me, have you seen these jobs, here, these part-time jobs coming up, and of course the pathway started to develop then. And they had a national pathway, and they said they're looking for coaches on it, Stuart. Why don't you go and volunteer for a week and go on these week-long camps working with the best kids in the country? And I said, well, I haven't got a level three coaching badge, Joe. And he said, it's all right, the club will pay for that. We'll get you that, get playing. get on it. Well, in the end, I got my level three, which was really unusual for a grassroots coach then. And I was already counting, coaching regional teams and, and county teams and stuff like that. So my reputation as a grassroots coach had really grown mm. and I got on the national pathway as a head coach and they give me this really good group to work with and it's like three or four groups there um, and again I had some staff at my disposal and I, I, it went really well Josh do you know what I mean
0: yeah.
1: and, and, and while I was there at the camp uh, up in Amplethorpe. And it was like a week one camp and the best kids in the country went to this camp. I had no idea who selected them or where they come from. There was kids from my area there. And um, the Great Britain Academy coach had come and there was a tour coming up in two years time. And um, he was walking around looking at all the kids and he said, can I come and have a watch of your group today and just tag onto your group and make some notes? I said, yeah, of course you can. At the end of the day, he came up to me because I need to talk to you. It's great what you're doing. By now, I was really being a renegade. I was, you know, not a maverick, a renegade. That means I was pretty happy to upset people and change stuff. I'm coming, I'm smashing things down. Things are changing. Um, and because that's how I thought I needed to be able to develop my brand. I needed to, and I was prepared to fight to the death to get my stuff through. So I said, yeah, what well, I said, he said, he said, come for a cup of tea tomorrow, lunchtime. I want to have a chat you about what you're doing. And, um, Something happened in that time in between that night when he said goodbye to me and the following day when he came back, because he was really good friends with the kid I looked after in Australia. Uh, I didn't know at the time, they were ex-teammates. And he gave me a job and he said, and he come and he said to me, I've had a conversation with a fellow you know, do you know Andy Platt? And I goes, yeah, of course I do. And he goes, he, mate, he, he tells me you're a legend. He said, so what I'm gonna to say to you now, will you be my assistant coach with Great Britain Academy or going to New Zealand and Australia in two years' time when we're on this big project? Fucking two, right? <laughs> so I was off. That's what we, you know, so think the camp went really well. So working with under 12s and making a mess of stuff while I'm discovering being this renegade coach it had worked really well for me and then even at the end of the camp the camp director that it was like the national performance manager and said we need you to, to disseminate what you do to this coaching workforce so people wanted what the stuff I was doing
0: mm, yes yeah, so, so you yeah. must have been doing it and I think as well with the with the practice at the grassroots it, it you had got that experience with the kids so on the um on the the week away you could not only be a, the new coach that you wanted to be but you could you know do it in front of kids
1: with, a, with no pressure sort of thing Exactly. Yeah. I was I, Josh, I'm, I'm really proud to say I volunteered. You know what I mean? And I still will do today.
0: Well, know? that's what somebody so, said in the last podcast, they said the best thing you could ever do is volunteer because you, you could learn oh, so much um, and, and create so so many like like pathways and, and networking.
1: Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we, off we went. Uh, we, went, on, went this, we went on this two, three year journey with these lads. Um, we went to New Zealand and, and it went really well. We, we won for the first time in history. Uh, Great Britain had won a, a test series on, on New Zealand soil, which had never been done before. And then we flew on to Australia, we beat the Australians in their own backyard for the first time in history. And it, that was brilliant. Do you know what I mean? So but well, I talk about the network, making your network work for you again, Josh. So there was, on that tour, there was a number of Leeds Rhinos players. And the chairman was there from Leeds Rhinos and he was over there looking for talent. And there it, 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 it was five or six Leeds Rhinos Academy players there and he was staying in our, our hotel, uh, the Radisson it was in Manly. And um, he come up to me and said, oh, Stuart, he said, um, he said, I'm taking some of the lads out for, for something to eat tonight just to catch up with them. I'm only here for a couple of days. Will you join us? And I went, yeah, of course I will. Um, And I I went along and then the lads went off and he said, can you just have you for a minute? He said, I've got a really good full-time job coming up at Leeds Rhinos. Um, Obviously, like these, and and again, going back to it, he he, he had the connection with the coach, the head coach I was working for and the the young man I looked after in Australia. All right. Um, And he said, people speak really well about you. I'd like you to apply for this job. Um, And I was was still like there being a fitness instructor, part-time coach, picking up money where I could back home in the Lake District, putting food on the table. So I I got interviewed for the job at Leeds Rhinos and I became the first ever player, youth player performance manager in rugby league and I got the job and and that was me breaking into full-time sport. Mm. So Really quickly since then, Josh, I worked for Leeds Rhinos for 10 years, setting up their youth system. Then I, then I didn't apply for jobs anymore. I got edulted by Wigan Warriors. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, from there, I went to Witness Vikings and I helped them set up the system. And then I was asked to go and work for the governing body as a national performance coach Where I went to a, a coach England Academy. Um, and then I was head coaching them awful victories over Australia. Um, I coached England school boys. I coached the full England team. I was assistant coach with the British Lions. I was head coach of the Welsh national team, and I became uh, head of elite coaching. I started to develop coaches with the French national team, um, and then I started. To, I worked in Europe then for a bit, coaching Russia, and today, up uh, today, I'm coaching the Serbia head co- head coach as well. So, in that time, Josh, I never applied for a job again. Yeah, you know what I mean, and even Salford have have, have have asked me to do their reserves. So I don't ask for jobs anymore. They come to me through the reputation and the network I built up. Mm. And do you think it is that you
0: know to start off with you need a networking to get into the sport and then once you're in it's you know your CV and your reputation speaks for yourself is that sort of the the way yeah. coaching is now?
1: And Josh, you know, you know that's took a lifetime to do. Yeah, it's not going to happen overnight. Do you know what I mean? But I am the same with young people. If the decent young people that come to me, I want a leg up. I give them a leg up. I find a way in. You know, that's why I do it. I pass the baton on, and I'm really happy to do that. Uh, but in that time as well, Josh, I, I, I got a chance to study for a, a degree in sports science at Leeds Met or Leeds Beckett is now. I did that. I did a master's at UCLan. I did a teaching degree. Um, I've done a lot of post-undergraduate stuff and I'm in the last throes of my PhD at the moment. Mm. Why do I do all that study? Because I love what I do. And when you think about what ontology is, so now you can you, you've looked into my world. Okay, Josh, and my, my, I love my world, and what my world is—that's is that academy performance environment. That's where I thrive. Okay, so that's my life. That's how I articulate my life. That what, that's what—that's my ontology is. That's what happens in our, inside all that. All right, what my epistemology is—is right—is like I see it like my CPD. All right, what can I do? to excel in that environment. What do I need to read, study, do, follow up, grow, read, speak to people so I can excel in this ontological world. You got me?
0: Yeah.
1: That's where where they both fit Josh. Mm. All right, so the the world we love is our ontology, the world and our perceptions of it, of how we see the world. This is why a lot of people who who teach it don't get it right because they can't see my world. It's that nuanced. I'd probably have left a hundred of things, 101 things out of that, our little talk here, but that's my ontology. I need, um, what am I doing today? I'm now developing myself as a coach developer. All right. For the people in that world, because yeah. then I live longer in that world. Yeah. You got me? My PhD is a contribution to that world where I can stay in there, thrive and succeed by coaches asking me to help develop them. Yeah. Now, my PhD is about me and my development, so I can still contribute and excel in that world which I love, where I want to stay. Okay. Mm. uh, Axiology is the part where I'm allowed to articulate it and speak about the the values and the principles and, and what I've just said to you now. So now you have a clear idea of how my growth has helped my epistemological growth. All right. Driven by what I see. and perceive the world to be. Gary. Yeah, get it? Yeah. Has it helped you?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and do you think, you know, I was going to ask you about the fact of becoming a lecturer, do you think you were the least of, you know, um, passing on that information and giving people a leg up, as, as you just said, do you think is that the reason you got into that teaching role, to just give people- that's
1: that. Yeah, that's all it is to me, Josh, nothing else. Just mm. young people who are trying to make something of their lives and I can help them, Yeah. Right? So I'm, I know loads about coaching. All right, so I know that much about coaching. Rugby league's not big enough, mm-hmm. you know. What I mean, you know, it's not. Um, I need to I need to expand what I do and influence so many other people that are going to go off into sport to help them develop a little bit more and pass the baton to them, so you know they can grow and have a brilliant, successful life in sport like I have. So I've been been a lecturer for seven years. It wasn't a plan, Josh. It wasn't. Um, I, I saw it and uh, it was an opportunity to come up and I went for it. And I got a new career at 50 odd. You don't often get that. And yeah. I just yeah, I speak to young people about sport all day.
0: And it's one of them where you won't, you know, you won't uh, influence everybody, but there's going to be at least five or five or to 10 people in in that year or in that class where they're going to be like, well, I'm listening to him and you're going to inspire yeah. them to, to be a, the, next, the next coach in whatever aspect that is.
1: Well, that's exactly the same as when you coach, Josh. You know what I mean? I've had many academy players say, you know, they come on this journey and it's such a tough journey for them. And, you know, when we're we're releasing them, which is always a difficult time, you know, quite often they say, I love rugby, but not that much. Mm. So I, I love coaching and I'm damn sure the audience out there think, I like it, student that much. And I get that because young people might be like, I'm doing this because I like sport and coaching is something I'm passionate about because it's about developing people. Um, So I don't really know where I'm going with it yet. And I'm sure there's people out there that like, you know, we have students that are complete assignments and they're really good students and they interact well. They can't bloody coach and they probably won't coach. Do you know what I mean? So we have a mixed bag and you can't reach them all, Josh. But as long as like um, I've give you everything I've got each lecture or workshop, all right. Um, I'm happy, you know. And if somebody picks it up and does something with it, great. If and don't get me wrong, there's as many students avoid me than than, than, than engaging me. Um, and I've passed them on the street and they put their head down and what past. You know what I mean? I get it. You know, I've no problem with that. I've not got an ego with stuff like that, um, and I've got nothing to prove. I've had a, I've had a really really good coaching career, taking on the best in the world and winning. Helped loads and loads of athletes. Um, so I'm not bothered what people think of me. But that was my idea as a renegade coach anyway.
0: Yeah, and I was just about to speak about styles and stuff. But touching on your point there, it's kind of you know what you've learned throughout years and your time in Australia and stuff. When you know you, you kind of had a hard time, it's it's knowing that I know what I know, and you know you've had. Uh, countless years of experience and if people want that then you'll give it to them and if they don't then you know you're not bothered and I think that's that's the thing that like, so many people miss out on, on information off coaches just by sort of collecting them and just ignoring them when they could learn so much
1: yeah exactly Josh
0: and touching on your, your styles I mean you, you spoke about when you're at the camp how you know you weren't afraid of fighting for your way of of coaching um what would you kind of say your your style of coaching is you know you wanted to redevelop and and rebrand um, coaching as your own. What sort of structure thing did you put in place for that?
1: Yeah, so, it's a, you've got, so you've got your competencies that are learned about on coaching courses, but then you've got like all your, your humanistic and your, your, your dispositions and your personalities that influence different things. So I think a new strike right from the start, um, you couldn't really hang your coat on one particular style. I mean, even today, there's like, people put up good arguments about doing that. Do you know what I mean? But you know, I, I just think that uh, I'm pretty much be able to adopt to most environments um, pretty quickly. I remember looking after a girls' team for for, for when my wife was poorly uh, for a short while, and I, I thought I profiled what they needed quite quickly because they were just getting blokes teaching women what blokes game what the blokes games was. When I thought. No, they're a different animal altogether. What do they need? How do they like to learn? So with a bit of research, I went some experiments and it changed the way coaching was to them, their sessions was to them. Do you know what I mean? So I thought, you know, so what I'd normally drop on something, I didn't use with the women. And the same with the Serbians. Um, do you want me to tell you another story?
0: Yeah, yeah, crack on, yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, so um, I'm... I get the Serbian coaching job like anything through my network and all it was was someone contacted me on LinkedIn. What was I doing? And I wasn't doing anything at the time. So um, I said I was interested. I had a chat with my boss at UCLan and uh, within a couple of days, I was flown into Belgrade for an interview. And um, that afternoon, they offered me the job and I took it. Um, But if you keep this in your back of your pocket, Josh, right the way through, there was something irritating me. You know, was could it be the language? Um, but I'd already experienced that with French, France, and Russia, and now you have to adapt and learn parts of, of the language, even though I'm not an expert in new ways of communicating. But that irritation, if we just put that irritation, that's always there in this, this little story I'm going to tell you now. i have even gonna even, even give this story a title, I, I, I call it The Day I Met Yoda on the Banks of the, of the Danube. All right, so, um And I did, I met Yoda um, in Belgrade on the banks of the Danube and I'll show you how that happened. And what he did to me about about changing my styles and adapting. Um, So I successfully coached many international teams in different World Cups. uh, And I'm gonna do the same with Serbia, see if I can get them to qualify uh, for the next World Cup. So when I'm there, um, that I used to be able to train at Red Stars facilities and they've got like, um, well, you know, because Red Stars like a sporting club, you know, it as a football club, mm. but it runs a basketball team that's really high profile, ice hockey um, and it runs rugby league as well. Okay. So they all share these facilities and I was allowed to attract train in the gym, which was down o- underneath the university on the banks of the Danube in Belgrade. And I like my gym, so I used to go every morning. Um, so when I'm in there training, uh, and about nine o'clock, this massive man had walk in and say to me, uh, "You go we work." <laughs> and I went, "Yeah, no problem." And uh, I'd go outside and I'd have my breakfast outside on the Danube, and there was a cafe just at the university there. And then their their um, institute of sport was was next to the um, the university, so I'd have my breakfast out there and. This young man come down, he's only about 35 or something, called Raleigh, and um, I made friends with him and he come over to talk to me because he saw me Serbian top on. I said, honestly, mate, I'm not that good yet. I just coached the Serbian rugby team. And I went, all right, yeah, no problem. I lived in Canada for 10 years. Um, so we, he used to meet me for breakfast and we'd have a chat. And I said to Rally, who's that fella, that massive bloke there with all, and he goes, oh, that's the, the Red Star water polo team. I goes, oh, do they have a water polo team as well? He goes, yeah. because they're not doing so good, but he'll improve. And um, I said, I'm looking at him I'm thinking, annoying from somewhere. Anyway, I'm like an Olympic freak. So I, I look at all the, you know, I watch on YouTube all the time, great Olympic events. And um, I rem- I said to him, what's his name? He said, "Igor Mil- 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 Milanovic. I went. All oh, right. Yeah, it's good. So, for, for a small country like Serbia to beat Italy in the last few seconds at water polo was huge. But I remember watching the games, just in Beijing. Mm. I was thinking, and I remember his big daft head on the side of the pool, and everybody mobbing him because Serbia had beaten for Olympic gold Italy, and it's just unheard of for a tiny country. And that's where I, I, I remember him from. He goes, "Oh, do you remember that?" Yeah, he goes, "Do you want to meet him?" And I said, "I'd love to." So he shouted Igor over and uh, he's like a huge, he'd been a big, big coach throughout the world at water polo and been an Olympic coach as well. And he's about my age. And um, he said, to he goes, "Yeah." Like, so the next day we had a, a bit of a, a chat and he said, so you're one game off, two games off qualifying for, for Serbia's World Cup. I said, well done. He said, but what, what are you doing that's any different than anybody else has done? And I, said, I, I remember thinking, I was, have you there josh yeah yeah, yeah still there yeah. The screen's gone off for some reason
0: where's your screen gone off then
1: mm. it's just gone blank mate i'm sorry can you see me then
0: i can still see you yeah
1: yeah so if i keep on talking and hopefully it'll come back up oh, yeah there we go
0: yeah no that's right no worries yeah
1: um so yeah that was so it so it i started to remember i said to him well They've just got rid of a, a, one coach um, because they went to Russia for a qualifying game and lost and they shouldn't have lost. But the players behaved despicably. So they sat the coach and his team. That's how I've got the job. And the other guy had done this and the other guy had done that. And he goes, and Stuart Wilkinson will be unsuccessful as well. And I'm like, excuse me. And he said, well, what are you doing? That's any different. I've not, I've not heard you tell me anything, how you've adapted, how you've changed to get under the fabric of these young Serbian men. What are you doing that's any different? Otherwise, you're going to be as equal as the unsuccessful. So now I'm thinking, this is really good. You know, man, I've got someone knocking me about here. Mm, testing you. Yeah. yeah, and it's nothing better. I love critical conflict, Josh, you know what I mean? I think it's the, the lifeblood of, 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 uh, of good good coaching. For each other and working in as a team, that you can question each other and interrogate each other. And this guy was interrogating me on the banks of the Danube um, over breakfast. And what he said to me he said, "I'm going to give you a task because I like what you're saying and what you're doing." He said, um, "He said I don't want you to come back to me till you completed this task." Now, going back to the stuff that talked about earlier that was irritating me, that's still there. Okay. Mm. Um, and he said, I oh, said, so what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to go, to, forget your plans for now. Go and talk to the board of directors and the management group that runs Serbia. Ask them what's, what's brought them to this point. What was their journeys? All right. Why are they involved doing what they're doing? And I'm like, well, I'll do it. I'm not sure what I'll get out of it. And I thought, well, let's go for it because I've obviously got something to learn about Serbia and Serbian people. Yeah. All right, so, so I can, you know, reach them in an optimal way. Um, so I rang my football manager up, um, Kika, and I call him Kika because he's called Kikovic. So I call him Kika. Um, and he's a laugh, he's a lovely, and he, again, he was about 36, 37. And uh, I told him what I was doing. He said, that's really good, Stuart. He said, nobody's ever been interested in us. The last coach didn't want to know anybody about anybody. Why are you doing this? And I told him, he goes, all right, yeah, that's fine. He goes, and I'll start with you, Keek, and we'll do you this afternoon. And um, so I went through the board, you know, within a couple of days, Josh. Mm -hmm. And Igor was absolutely right. There was an emerging theme appearing in everything that they were doing and talking about. And it was this man called John Risman, all right? Now, I know John Risman. He coached me when I was on loan at Carlisle for a bit. And never taught me anything about rugby, but a lot about camaraderie, friendship, and effort and togetherness. Do you know what I mean? And all they talked about with John and how they met how this group of men had met John, who were, who were now the board of directors of Serbia, who was student, played in the Student World Cup, all right, and he was in Scotland. <coughs> and John risman was the Scottish student's coach, head coach. They looked after Serbian men, they used to go and pick them up in a players, pick them up in minibuses, run them around and showed them some stuff. But, uh, so, so when they actually became uh, the board at Serbia, they offered John the head coach's job because they remember him networking again, Josh. Yeah. And uh, John Risman coached him for about five or six years, but every single one of them had a really good story about John. All right. And it was nothing to do with learning anything sexy about the sport or a new drill or a new craft or how to maneuver a team. Do you know what I mean? Or how to synthesize what you see in the footage into practice. All the things that I'm an expert on. You know, it was nothing about that. It was more about how, the, how you know, in developing relationships with them and having fun with them and memorable times. So I, I definitely picked up that um, that was, that's what was ir- irritating me that the Serbian lads wanted an experience with me. So then I thought, well, you know, now, now what I need to be able to do in, my, in my session planning is give all them that's a John Risman experience. All right. So that's how I classified it and graded, and graded it. Uh, but I, we need to find out why relationships are so important. And I part that up um, because I didn't think it was important. But I rang Ego, texted him and said, listen, I've answered the question. You've I like it because let's meet to this afternoon and discuss it further. So I was going back to Yoda to tell him I'd found stuff um, and I think have helped found what irritate me and possibly to get under the fabric of these men. But just as you can gather by now, I hadn't. Mm. There's a a deeper story taking place and one that that, uh, I'm shameful to admit I missed, but it certainly helped me draw on new resources and new ways of doing things. So the day I was going to meet Igor back at the at the Danube, or Yoda back at the Danube, <laughs> um, we Kimi we and Kika had a day where we went to the Institute of Sport, we went to the local university, and we were looking at what was available for developing a national pathway in Serbia, which is part of my job spec. Um, but when I when I was doing that, I was like, it dawned on me then that I've got ego, but and there's a couple of other people, but where are all, where's all the old blokes? Where's the older people? Where's the older men? Mm. Where's people like me and Cliff? Where are they? And I'm not meeting any, because everybody I meet is like 35 and 40, and they're all in massive influ- influ- influential positions, or all the women that have got secured jobs. So the head of sport at, at, at Belgrade University was a woman, All right, and her assistant in sports science was 30 years old, and that would be unheard of in UK or America or Canada. Yeah. We go to the Institute of Sport and there was an old lady there who was leading up everything and her, her workforce was young men as well. So now I'm like, when we're driving along, Josh, I'm looking in bus stops for old men, we're stopping at crossings and I'm looking, seeing if I can see any old men and I'm not seeing any. All right. All right. Um, and we're on the way on the way back from the Institute of Sport back to the Danube, where the university was, where I was meeting Ego. We couldn't get through the middle of town because it was like a, a, a political rally on. All right, it was just heaving with thousands of people. So, so uh, Keith took me on the ring road, and we're going. And this is where oh, the jigsaw puzzle finally come together, Josh, and what I needed to do in the future. Um, so sorry for being long-winded, but you can't, you can't. It, it's that nuanced about changing your coaching style or developing a new way. Um, I have to tell you this story so it hits home at you. Um, and for me to make sense as well because I'm so, oh, so set in new ways. And we're going around this ring road, and on this big ring road, there's these massive big billboards, all right. And I'm talking about 10 foot high with black and white pictures all the way along them. And I mean, like, that's unusual. What's that, Kika? And he goes, oh, do you want to know? That was there all the people that was murdered in the, the, Bo- the Bosnian Wars. And I'm like, stop the fucking car now. Who, who are these? And he went, well, that's what's happened. He says, what I'll tell you now, that woman there who we're looking at now, she was a world leader in mathematics. That, gen- that gentleman there was a world leader in music. So when the Bosniaks um, ransacked Serbia, they didn't, it wasn't carnage. They targeted Serbia's intelligence, Serbia's mm-hmm. intelligence, and and either murdered them. And I'm saying, well, Kika, where, where are the people my age? And he goes, easy, Stuart. They're either on that board or they fled. They're either in Germany or in America or somewhere now. But you, you we don't have men your age. They were all murdered or gone. So I'm like, fuck me. I just didn't feel worthy, Josh. Yeah. So I've had this kid drive me around that I've been taking the mickey out of him and I said, well, how did that affect you then? And he said, well, uh, um, my, my, my brother was, was murdered by the Bosniaks. Um, and my, dad, my father hung himself because he was that upset. And I was 12 or 13 walking around the forest with a machine gun. And I'm like, Christ. Wow, yeah. And I sat next to him. And he goes, and tell me, as, it, as, as all that group says, we've all got stories from the war. And I'm like, Christ, I've missed this. Well, there you have it, Josh. The thing that was irritating me was like their appetite for me being an old man. Yeah. Picking up my bag, here's a cup of coffee, here's a bottle of water. Just fussing over me all the time. It's like, go away. All right. And it it, it wasn't the sport they wanted. It was me and my knowledge. Just
0: Because all the, everyone else has just obviously been murdered, all the intelligent people,
1: what would, what would you be like without your coaches and your teachers and your, your stuff? Really? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I got it then. So by the time I got to ego, I was able to put the jigsaw puzzle together. That these people don't just want to learn about rugby. So if in England, I could just go right there's my academy team, that's the team we're playing. We're playing against France or uh, Australia. That's where they're strong. That's where we're going to catch and where they're weak. And this is where they're going to possibly get against us. All right. Do some sexy stuff on the field and get out there and play. All right. They they bring the camaraderie and the friendship and everything they've got from sport. So, but these people are, you know, so these people are picking our sport, my sport. All right. For all the experiences I've had. Mm -hmm. So I've I've got to generate that that togetherness and that connectivity before I go near any rugby, all right? So now I have a philosophy with them about, right, before I do anything with them, am I giving them a John Risman experience? Is this something really, really good and unique taking place where I can build up their memories, regardless of if we win or lose or what or what the outcomes of training could be? So therefore, I had to change an approach to coaching Josh, all right, based on the demographic what I was working with. All right. It wasn't just about um, having a, a, knowing the A to Z of rugby and how to outmaneuver a team, which I'd done successfully and had t- developed talent. You know, I had to have a really good moral compass and I had to be transparent in my coaching in everything that I did. All right. So you go back to your your, your mixture, your centralization, your philosophical alignment of ontology, epistemology, and axiology. Sat in the middle is John, the John Miserum and experience. So, you know, had all those outer things changed. No. All right. But the population in the middle hadn't anymore. All right. So I had to develop new ways of doing things. Mm. And right. Was it a case
0: of, of, with that experience, just having that team cohesion sort of knowing what you've learned and sort of take that into consideration every single day, knowing that like they're not there for the rugby necessarily. They're just there because, because you're there and you're so influential on their, you know, abilities to learn. Was that something that's taken consideration when doing your drills and your, your sort of activities and stuff?
1: Yeah, and I, I do even little tiny things. I pull them in and I go right before we start, guys. Who haven't you spent more than two minutes with tonight? So of course, when you work with the national team, they come from different clubs, and they have that romance where they just nod at each other and they stay in the groups. And and, and I say, so what I want you to do, just eyeball the eyeball somebody you've just nodded to today. I'll go and have a talk to them for two minutes and come back with an interesting story about their day. Mm. And now you can hear them all laughing and. The banter just takes off and some of them are crying with laughter because they're getting that funny stories. I said, let's share the best one then. Do you know what I mean? So tiny things like that, Josh, um, are really important. Of course, I do different things with them, but I won't do anything. You're getting getting bugger all sexy out of me today till you've done your bit.
0: Yeah. And uh, would you say that so many coaches miss that sort of um, the community side of it, you know, knowing what's gone on in the past, knowing what previous managers and stuff like that have done and sort of forgetting the, the mental health side of it, this the, you know, the social side of it and just focusing focusing on, you know, well, we're just going to do these drills today and then crack on, you know. Do, do you think a lot of coaches do kind of miss that kind of aspect of it?
1: Absolutely, Josh. So when you think about any organisation or any team, if you think about Man United and Liverpool, who do would you support, Josh? Uh spot Liverpool, yeah. Yeah. So if you think about Everton and Liverpool's uh, social cultural factors, they're completely different. All right. They're completely different. You can't go to Liverpool where you've been successful and drop it on Everton's. All right. So their social cultural factors is their community reputation, their brand, their DNA, and how they do things. If you can't align to that, you're not going to be there long. Mm. All right. So do they miss it? Loads of them do. All right. And of course, in more recent years there has been an upsurge in, in interest in in making the club's cultural and social factors a priority and keeping coaches on revolving doors, like Pep Guardiola Yeah. Like when you things like the you know the DNA of Barcelona from Damien Hughes, you know, things have really, really kicked on in terms of like the board of directors being more sensible that they appoint the right person. So, you know, there's no doubt about it that Serbia had run round making different appointments that hasn't worked. And then they came to me, all right, and I did this with them. So th- so they actually love the fact that I'm connected to their social and cultural factors. I'm connected to their community reputation and needs. So I could probably be there as long as I wanted, regardless yeah. of results. Do you know what I mean? So it really is about connecting with that. And I think that's a big one. So I don't think you can talk about epi- epi- epistemological growth of somebody and how they deal with things without them understanding their biography, which you've, pa- which you've been, and your listeners can hear today. You've got my biography, my biography being articulated in and around ontology, epistemology and axiology and sitting in the middle of it, all right, is this, is this per- people that I can drop into it and I can adapt and change because of my life experiences. Mm. I can excel in that world what i want to be in by making sure i constantly grow in terms of epistemology or your cpd to help you excel in that world all right yeah my axiology is the part where i can articulate that like i've done today with stories and ideas and values and beliefs and and, and priceless artifacts that i'm able to share with you josh yeah. so yeah if you, and the biggest lesson is if you can't connect with that social cultural reputation that you can drop it in the middle of that you know uh, Plato's theory of philosophical alignment um, you're never going to optimise your experience with them
0: yeah definitely and do you you think it does kind of depend on sort of the goals and um, and what the the club thinks so for example Serbia you know they might not be too bothered about results as long as you know that team cohesion's there, and they, you they know, they're all a group and friendly. But if you look at, it, for example, like Chelsea with Frank Lampard, you know, if they're not winning, then Frank Lampard's getting the sack. So, do you think it can depend on, you know, the aspects of the club and their their goals?
1: I, I think it's got to be about that. So, if it, I mean, obviously, like Chelsea, I'm not, so, I'm not sure so Chelsea are aware Liverpool, aware Man City, aware Barcelona, aware Bayern Munich. Do you know what I mean? If they're sacking a coach like that. All right that has good connections to their social cultural factors all right that they haven't grasped the the need to that that's the priority our brand and our reputation are way more important than any coach all right so i think i think the 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 fallings there is is not frank lampard um it's the board not being tuned to current ways of thinking uh, what is Chelsea's community reputation nowadays, Josh? Me and you couldn't articulate it, even if we tried. Yeah. But we could certainly do Liverpool's, couldn't we? Yeah. Right. I mean, Barcelona and, and Bayern Munichs.
0: Mm. And sometimes it's like if you look at those those clubs of, so for example, Liverpool. Obviously, they're going for a sticky patch at the moment. It's sort of their foundations are, you know, they're relying on on sort of Klopp's um, sort of beliefs and his and the way he goes about. It. If you look at Chelsea, it's kind of like if you're not winning three games in a row, then then you're gone. So it, it does depend. And do you think as, as, you know, new coaches coming in, it's hard. You know, on the one side of it, where a lot of former players and our coaches. So they might get the pit because, you know, they played at a certain club or, or been associated with somebody else, you know, through networking maybe. Um, but also the fact that if you're not winning a couple of games, it's depending on the club's beliefs, that you could just get the sack and then that sort of your career over necessarily.
1: I, I look at my new, how many, how many, absolutely fantastic coaches have they gone through before they got their hands on Ollie and realized actually like you know these they, we're spending loads of money on these blocks and, they, and they're spending a lot of money that we haven't got on players let's get our culture right first and let's get the right person in there to develop the culture and become these cultural architects and develop these archa- artifacts that align so well to, to, to the social cultural factors your board needs to be strong to make that Klopp will never get the sack even though they're having a great patch all right, yeah. because we know he he represents their community reputation better than anybody else, you know. And if you look back to the ones that have been successful at Liverpool in the past, um, what's he called the the, the, the the Scotch guy from years ago? The Kenny Dalish? No, before him. Before that, uh... really famous fella. Oh, that, that could I can't remember his name. Bill,
0: it's not Bill shankleys yet. Yeah,
1: there you go. Yeah, so Klopp's
0: like that, and he? he cares. Mm. And got it's that hey. supportive side of it as well. You know, the support, love him. You know, you see on social media, these sort of branded fake fans saying Klopp out and um, outside the Anfield gates, there's a sign saying, you know, never walk alone, Klopp. And it's. do you think that it kind of does, as a coach, you need that support of, you know, for example, like your grassroots side of it with the parents sort of being there for, for support, it's, it's having those around you on the same side of you.
1: Of course, it is, Josh. So if you think about it, um, all you ever hear about people like Arsene Wenger, Bill Shankley, um, Alex Ferguson, all right, you don't hear, oh, he gave us this ingenuity way of playing and we changed it and we outmaneuvered Barcelona to win the European Cup. What do they talk about, all, the, all their ex players, the laugh they had with them, the relationships they have with them? They talk about John Risman experiences, Josh. Yeah. Get me? Yeah. That's what—that's the memories you, you leave them with. That's when you know you've got the right person. Do you understand what I mean? And all you get coming out of Klopp and Liverpool is, is you know, they, they apologise for the, for how they're going. They know they're in a the grout patch. But anybody who speaks about Klopp, they all speak well about what a good bloke, what a good laugh, yeah. what a smart fella, how well does he handle relationships. So even though they've all done pioneering work, Josh, Uh, what went first? The fact that they could manage relationships because they were comfortable in the environment because they were aligned really well with that community reputation. Yeah. And do you think... Sorry, go on. No, carry
0: on. I was was just going to say, do you think um, as a coach, it's more mastering sort of, you know, it's all right being so good at the tactical side of it. You know, you spoke before about students being so good at writing um, like essays and stuff like that. But if you're not good at the physical side of it, then you're not going to succeed. Is it like... um, a part of being good at the, the tactic bit, but also having them social abilities to make memories, you know, like so many, I think Rio Ferdinand recently said that um, about Sir Alex Ferguson, how, you know, when he thinks about him, he doesn't think about the medals he's won, he thinks about the time they had together and, and how much you learn. And do you think that is such essential?
1: Yeah, all, that's all they talk about, Gary Neville and all them. They all have memories when he come around the house and change the girlfriends away for breakfast. You know, they're opening the door at six o'clock in the morning, Alex is stood there in his slippers marching into the house, they all have funny memories about what they did together. All right, so perhaps we're obsessed with this technical and tactical model, Josh, and, and come up with a, with a sexy new way of doing things uh, that we're missing, we're missing the real point. This is the is social side of it. Mastering relationships, mastering challenging and differentiating challenges and offering a high level of support. And do you think
0: think within them relationships, it's hard, you know, especially for you when you've been to places like France and Russia and stuff like that, do you think it is hard to create relationships through, you know, the the barrier of maybe a different language set or a different um, structure within the team? Do you think that's hard or?
1: No, what else could I do, Josh? I couldn't speak and I didn't know my way around. So I needed other people to help me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I I had to be a people's person. You know, I had to be. Mm. Um, And that's what comes first. You know what I mean? And even if it, it's transparent with, with the students, I really, really try to get under the fabric of the students so I can differentiate and challenge accurately.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, it, and I think that it's definitely essential as a lecturer as well and as a sports coach to have that ability to be a people's person for the instance of, you know, relationships, if there's an issue, they can come to you. But also I think if there was an incident where, like personally, if I didn't know what was going on in my assignment or something, I probably wouldn't have an issue with, you know, messaging you saying, hi, Stu, I'm struggling with this rather than with other people. It's sort of that that hard relationship to build. And I think, no, do you think... See,
1: it's, it's, I think for me, Josh, how I've done it and I've been successful at it, is if you, you've, got to, um, you've got to think about the triangle. So it's exactly like uh, coach, parent, uh, athlete, relationship, triangle. Mm. So we've got the student, the task, the assignment, the skill or whatever, and me. All right. So you engage in the assignment so you can work out, solve the problem and find out ways of doing for it. But you probably can't do that without some help and guidance off me, either in workshops, some tasks and a tutorial. So therefore, we develop a relationship, not a kissy, touchy, feely one, Josh, but one, the relationship in and around the task and the assignment. Okay. So that's when I view it, I think to myself, right. So when I do an assignment, it's all about developing, giving them space to develop a relationship with me in and around what the assignment is. So it's exactly the same as if you're teaching a center half, some positional specific stuff. All right. I'm the body of knowledge that helps him unravel the puzzle. All right. So they need me at some point, but I'm not foolish enough to think to myself, you know, the challenge needs to be appropriate so he can start to develop some independence in and around this task. Have you got me? Yeah. yeah. So I I think, you know, uh, I have exactly the same approach. Uh, What
0: what would you say your attitude is with players with probably big egos that think, you know, I I don't need Stu, you know, he might be a good coach, but I'm I'm the best rugby player I I, I can ever be. Do you sort of try and still build a relationship or just sort of let them crack on and
1: yeah, you just work your way around it if that's all you want, that's all you get off you go. Mm. Um, that's what you do with your players. Um, you know, you kind of hope they never slip up and they stay on the straight and narrow and they, they come good. And you know, I have no problem with that. Mm. You know? uh, if you have an ego in sport, Josh, you're going to get your fingers burnt one day, yeah, you can embarrass yourself. It doesn't, there's no fit really. Um, I've not, I don't know any wonderful player with a fantastic reputation or coach that's got a big ego.
0: And is it a fact of sort of watching them sort of go to the side, you know, if somebody has got a big ego, do you try and manage them? You know, look at Balotelli at Manchester City with Pellegrini. Um, he tried to manage Balotelli and it just it just didn't work. Do you think it is a case? Yeah.
1: Of- Honestly, mate, when you, you, I've met some players with really dark, sinister skills. I've met everything in rugby. Mm-hmm. And I've seen coaches backstab and do awful things to other to the coaching colleagues. I've I've seen everything take place that you could about. You, you could you could wish to see. I had a golden boot player who could never have a bad game. Yeah. He did. But when he did, it was my fault.
0: Yeah. And is it? Do you so, think yeah. so many people blame the external factors when things go wrong? It's like, oh, it's the coach. It's rather than saying the internal factors of it's, Oh, maybe I could have had a bad game there.
1: Well, that's it. That's why you've always got to be involved and connected to what the social cultural factors is. They can be a wonderful player, but they might not be any good for you. So, if you've got that relationship with the people that have appointed you, even if he is a Golden Boot boot winner, and you've done your research properly, he doesn't come in. I'd rather take the fifth best in the in the in the area or in the world or or in the town than the best one if he's not a good fit. If he doesn't connect to what social factors are, just just make best of what you've got. You know. Um, but over the years, I've been able to develop my own dark skills as well. So, And that doesn't mean I bully anybody. I have wit, sarcasm and humour. And it can pretty much show most people up with a bit of banter. Mm. So it's a softer approach, but it's still, a, it's still, you know, sarcasm and wit are good tools to handle, with some, handle somebody with a big ego.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's with the sarcasm, but it's you know saying something in a, in a joking manner, but it's, it's so they know it, it's a firm request, you know, rather than you know saying it to, to him. Um, so they get annoyed at saying it as a joke and they for them to know, you know, he's, he means business,
1: yeah, exactly. So as soon as everybody rolls out laughing, all right, um, you've crushed his ego, mm. you know, and, and so-
0: even knocked down a peg.
1: Yeah, don't worry. Don't think about it, Josh. Though. I wouldn't do that. In, you know, uh, like for uh, deliberately go out and do that to to someone with a shy disposition. You're talking about someone who's trying to to destroy the environment. You're talking about a cultural assassin. Yeah, ruin right. the relationship. Yeah, yeah, mate. So you, you bide your time and and wit and sarcasm does the rest. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I've always had that in me in my disposition and my personality. You know, so. In, in the world of coaching, where I've dealt with some great players, I've no problem with um, having fun at their expense for everybody else's benefit. But there is an underlying theme that, oof, God, I'm not going to do that again because he really embarrassed me there.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's everything we've really got time for there. Um, it's been great talking to you, um, Stu. Uh, It's been, you know, really knowledgeable um, knowing your journey as a a coach and and knowing what you've learned and sort of how you've over the years changed your approaches to different things and look towards the community side of it to look at benefits. So thank you very much for coming on.
1: You're welcome, Josh.